Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The word of the Lord. Be God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, source of all good things, may you help us to hear and receive the tidings of great joy in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. These verses contain three people or groups of people that play a role in the death of Christ. The first is the soldiers, which are featured in verses 16 through 20. So what role do the soldiers play in the death of Christ? Well, they play two roles. First, they beat and mock him. And second, they carry out the actual crucifixion. Perhaps most amazing about this is that Jesus knows this is what will occur, yet he allows himself to be arrested anyway. Just before this time, Jesus told the disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Jesus taught his disciples that his kingdom is characterized by humility and servanthood. And unwittingly, the soldiers are allowing Jesus to model and display exactly what he meant when he said, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so the soldiers beat and mock him as king of the Jews, yet unknown to them, he is the king of the Jews. And ironically, in their beating and mocking of our Lord, they are providing Jesus with an opportunity to model the uniqueness of his kingdom. The second person who participates in the death of Christ is Simon of Cyrene. 
So picking up now in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So what is Simon of Cyrene's role in the death of Christ? Well, at this point, Jesus has been mocked and beaten. The beating Jesus receives is so severe that it would have killed some men. Yet his task is not done. Jesus has to carry his cross. Jesus is most likely carrying the horizontal piece of the cross, a difficult task for someone who'd been beaten severely. And it is at this point that the soldiers compel a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross to Golgotha, which is outside the city walls. But there's another part of the story of Simon of Cyrene. Look again at verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Do you notice this personal note that Mark includes in his storytelling? He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark just inserts this phrase. And the interesting thing is that Rufus was a common name in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. So Mark is saying, okay, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. In other words, for Mark to just casually insert this information indicates that the readers of Mark's gospel know who he is talking about. Mark's readers must know Alexander and Rufus. And you'll remember Mark's gospel is written to Rome. It's written to Roman Christians. And interestingly, a certain Rufus is also mentioned at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So do you see this connection? Simon of Cyrene is the father of Rufus, who is a Christian and a friend of the Apostle Paul. So what happened to Simon of Cyrene after he carried the cross of Christ? Well, it's not hard to reconstruct what happened. Simon of Cyrene became a Christian. And when Simon of Cyrene became a Christian, he told his family about this Jesus Christ, and his wife and his children, Alexander and Rufus, also became Christians. And so not only did Simon of Cyrene help carry Jesus' cross, but he participates in the death of Christ through faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so we've got the soldiers and their role in the death of Christ. We've got Simon of Cyrene and the role he plays. And the third group of people to participate in the death of Christ in these verses is the robbers. In verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So what role do they play in the death of Christ? Well, they played two significant roles in the death of Christ. First, they fulfill prophecy. About 700 years before this crucifixion, a prophet named Isaiah wrote an amazingly accurate description of the events that would happen to the Messiah on 
the day of his crucifixion. And one of the details Isaiah wrote was that this suffering servant would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. So Pilate crucifies Jesus between two robbers, between two transgressors. These two men are convicted of insurrection, just like Barabbas was. And unwittingly, Pilate's actions fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah. So their first role is that they fulfill prophecy. The second role the robbers play is that they display what it means to have a place of honor in the kingdom of God. You may recall that sometime before, James and John had requested of Jesus, Mark 10, 37, Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Mark is no doubt attempting to remind us of that request when he says in Mark 15, 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. It's the same phrase that's used in Mark chapter 10. What does this teach us? Well, this gives us insight into what it means to occupy places of honor in the kingdom of God. Christ himself said in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? We see this all throughout the New Testament. Suffering precedes glory. We see this theme throughout the Gospels. We see it in the Apostle Paul's writings. We see it in the writings of Peter. When it comes to the, th to the kingdom of God, one principle is made clear. Suffering is followed by glory. And so we see that Pilate's action of crucifying Christ between two insurrectionists is the fulfillment of prophecy. And we also see that Christ uses these two transgressors and his death and their death to teach the church about honor in the kingdom of God. And so the role of the soldiers, the robbers, and Simon of Cyrene shows us that this is no ordinary death. The death of Christ is truly unique. And in his unique death, in this crucifixion of Christ, Jesus is showing us at least two things. Jesus is showing us first what growing a movement looks like. And Jesus is showing us second what persevering faith looks like. So first, let's consider how Jesus is showing us what growing a movement looks like. This is a death that many others have suffered, a Roman crucifixion. Death by crucifixion was common in the first century Roman world for criminals, and it was also ignominious. That is, it was full of shame and public contempt. Those present that day, those who stood around the wooden cross that day, didn't see its significance. To the soldiers, this is just an ordinary part of their job. To the Jewish leaders, it's a long sought after end to their problem. To the passers-by, it's just another reason to scoff. Soon enough, all those who witnessed the death of Christ that day are back to business. And for a while, as David Wells points out, the significance of the death of Christ passes under their nose. 
But the significance of the death of Christ becomes increasingly clear in the days and months and years that follow. The resurrection happens three days after his death. Then over time, the apostles are emboldened in their preaching. And the Spirit authenticates the apostles' ministry and miracles, as we see recorded in the book of Acts. The gospel is spreading far and wide. The spread of the gospel is geographical and social. It moves out and it moves up. The gospel goes to slaves like Onesimus and to the wealthy like Lydia. It spreads to Menaean, who according to Acts chapter 13 verse 1 was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. The gospel spread to the powerful Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The gospel spreads to all layers of society. In Paul's day, the gospel had already spread to Caesar's household. And all of this activity is grounded in the death of a carpenter from Nazareth and the resurrection that follows. And by the time the Roman Empire seems to notice, Nero is burning Christians in his private garden and blaming them for his treachery. This is what growing a movement looks like. For a while, no one notices. The most significant thing has happened, and no one even notices. For a while, nobody notices. Nobody cares. Everyone is busy eating and drinking, for tomorrow we die. The most extraordinary things are happening, but no one notices. Yet, God's people are emboldened because Christ defeated death, which means there is nothing left to fear. The mother of all fears has been defeated, so why should you be fearful? And so God's people in the power of the Spirit live faithful lives. They work hard. They suffer for doing good rather than evil. They pray. They worship. And they teach their kids to do the same. Nobody notices, though. This is what growing a movement looks like. While no one watches and no one cares, the gospel spreads geographically and socially because of the faithfulness of God's people and the Spirit who is working among them. The gospel moves out and up to the rich and the poor, to the men and the women and the children, to all layers of society. And at the center of it all, at the center of this movement, is the death of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross and the resurrection that follows. And so the first thing Jesus is showing us with his crucifixion is he's showing us what growing a movement looks like. The second thing Christ is showing us in his crucifixion is he's showing us what persevering faith looks like. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2 says that Christ endured the cross despising shame. Now what does that mean? He endured the cross despising shame. Well, Roman crucifixion was designed to bring about maximum shame upon the person. Roman crucifixion was designed to bring total humiliating shame upon the accused. It's a barbaric means of capital punishment, drawing out the torturous death in a slow fashion. Jerome Nayray, the theologian, argues that death by crucifixion was intended to bring about status degradation. 
And this certainly seems true with Christ. Look at what happens to him. First, we see that Jesus is scourged. This starts back in chapter 14, verse 55. Then again in chapter 15, verse 15. He's scourged. That means he's, he's whipped. He's beaten. This is the prelude to the crucifixion, ushering the person into the beginnings of helplessness. Then Jesus is required to carry the crossbeam, as we see in verse 21. As we've already seen, Simon of Cyrene is eventually pulled out of the crowd to help Jesus, but Jesus was carrying the cross up until that point. So Jesus is carrying the crossbeam to the hill upon which he will die, adding insult to the death he's about to endure. It's particularly degrading when you're forced to, let's say, dig your own grave before you're executed and dumped in the hole. Well, it's a similar thing that's happening when Jesus carries his own cross. So he's scourged. He has to carry his own cross. Then we see that Jesus' clothes are parceled out in verse 24. They divide his garments and cast lots for them, deciding who will take them, which means that Jesus is naked. So our Lord has to bear the humiliation of being naked in public. A naked man beaten and nailed to the cross is a powerless spectacle. And we see that Jesus is ridiculed. We see this in verse 20 and also verses 29 through 33. Because all of this happens in public. The people are there. They're encouraged to attend. They want everyone to see what is happening to these criminals. And so when someone is crucified... Everyone's there watching, but they don't have any power to offer a defense. There is no way to rectify the dishonor of the crucifixion. And so this is designed to bring about status degradation. He's scour scourged, he's carrying his own crossbeam, his clothes are taken from him, and he is ridiculed. And in it all, Jesus is tortured. When someone is crucified, their body is nailed to the cross, and breathing becomes difficult. And so the victim begins a series of humiliating body contortions and excretions, all, again, in public view. The entirety of our Lord's crucifixion is designed to bring about great dishonor. It's designed to bring about a public, a public degradation. And so Hebrews 2.2 says Christ endured the cross, despising shame. That's what it means. Jesus' death by crucifixion brought about status degradation. That is what the enemy did to Christ, and that is what the enemy now wishes to do to Christ's followers. And the enemy may not be able to get away with crucifying you, like Peter was crucified upside down, but make no mistake, the enemy wishes to bring Christians to a point of status degradation, just like Christ was brought to this point. And so the question for you then is, how will you endure this? And the answer is that to endure status degradation, if and when it happens to you, you must look to the example of Christ and how he endured it. How did Christ handle the prolonged and macabre status degradation during his crucifixion? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he founds your faith and he perfects your faith. And he does this because he himself has faith. 
Throughout his life on earth, he trusted in God's plan in sending the Son to earth in the form of a man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 13 says that Jesus put his trust in God the Father. So while Jesus is on earth taking on the form of a man, he has faith. He has trust in his heavenly Father who he can't see in his time on earth. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan pastor, said, Jesus was put to live by faith as we are. For in this example of Christ, we have the highest instance of believing that ever was. See, we don't think about this often enough. Jesus' life on earth required faith. Jesus was a real human being who gave up the heavenly privileges and glory to take on human form. And in this, he lived in a human body, in a human world, as a pilgrim on earth. As a child in the manger, Jesus had faith. We read this in Psalm 22, verses 9 through 10. Jesus starts his life with faith, which, by the way, shows that small children have the capacity for faith that pleases the Lord. But as a child, Jesus had faith. And then during his life on earth, when he was tempted, Jesus had faith. And as the dying Lamb of God, Jesus has faith. Jesus' trust in his Father's plan is tested to the utmost during the crucifixion. During the crucifixion, Jesus is cursed. That's what Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 describes this as. This is the cursing of God the Son. Jesus experiences darkness. We read about this in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, which symbolizes the judgment of God, the full judgment of God. The weight of the guilt of sin is coming down upon Christ. This is physical slaughter, as Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 describes it. He experiences scorn and separation from his heavenly Father in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. In this crucifixion, Jesus is becoming the sin bearer, the Lamb of God. All the sins of God's people are counted to him. Our iniquity is laid upon Jesus, and in his death, he is absorbing the guilt of sin for all those who will believe in him. And in it all, in the torturous crucifixion, Jesus keeps trusting his heavenly Father. Luke records that with Jesus' dying breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These words are Jesus' final profession of faith. And so the question then is, how did he do it? How did he keep the faith throughout all the suffering? How did he keep the faith through this status degradation? And the answer in part, is found in Isaiah chapter 50, this messianic prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 8, it says, He who vindicates me is near. This is the words of the Messiah. He who vindicates me is near. You see, Jesus knew he would be put to shame, as Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 says. Yet he did not hide his face from disgrace or spitting, as Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says. Because... He trusted that his heavenly Father would vindicate him. 
And so how did Christ endure this status degradation? How did he keep the faith? How did his faith persevere through all of this? Well, he trusted his heavenly Father who would vindicate him. That's how Christ endured status degradation. Now, how will you endure status degradation? Well, if and when the world sets out on a program of status degradation against you, whether it's big and state-sanctioned, or whether it's at the lunchroom at work, you can keep the faith. You can press on. You can persevere. You can endure and you can overcome because you trust that the Heavenly Father will vindicate you in that day. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ trusted that the Heavenly Father would vindicate Him and thus He persevered in faith through status degradation, so too that's how you will persevere in faith when things are hard, when persecution comes, when the world hates you and degrades you. You must trust that the Heavenly Father will justify you. This is what the God of creation enables you to do. He, through His Spirit, helps you to trust in Him, even when it's hard, even when you suffer. You trust God, not only for your salvation, not only for your justification, but you trust God for every detail in your life, in every moment of your life. This is the Christian life. The Christian life isn't a one-time event, I do this thing, okay, I'm saved. No, it's every day you trust the Lord, even when it's hard. Jesus Christ is the greatest believer that ever lived. And he blazed a path for all those who believe in him that come after. Jesus was willing to be despised and face rejection, to subject himself to false testimony and violence and a crucifixion. He was willing to receive the Father's judgment against sin on behalf of his people. Why did he do this? Well, in conclusion, he did this. He endured rejection so that the perfect and eternal love of God would be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, when we were undone with no desire to return to you and no intellect, to devise recovery, you sent your Son, God incarnate, to save to the uttermost. Jesus died our death to shed satisfying blood on our behalf, to work out perfect righteousness for us and to bring heaven to earth. For this we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed. K-I-R-K dot com.